as a therapist, when you are working with people and you have the way you do things and your agenda and your process and your protocol, for lack of a better word, all of that is cool. You want to have something that sort of guides your work, but it's also about flexibility. I would never say you should see somebody once a week for six months and then therapy is over. I also wouldn't say you should see somebody twice a week for seven years in order to deal with their mother issues. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. Tell you what's kind of cool. Okay. When this episode goes live, we're going to be together in Orlando for our first family retreat. That will be cool. We were also just together doing our photo shoot, which was also fun being together. That's two times in one month, which is two times more than typical. Isn't it interesting that we've never recorded a podcast in the same place? That's also because... We're not really sure how. <laughs> it's like we have one tech setup. Even if we were in the same house, you would have to be in one place and I would have to be in another. <laughs> That's right. I think other people do figure out how to do that. That's a goal for 2023. Well, because we started the podcast during the pandemic. So of course we didn't figure out how to be in the same place. So today we have an interesting topic for me because I can't wait to hear your answer to this listener question. Because since I have met you, you sort of really blew up my perception of what therapy is, the good and the bad. Yeah, yeah. Today, we're going to really talk about when is therapy over? Can you be done? Like, I have all these questions for you. Okay. I'm going to read the listener question first. Our daughter's been in therapy for about four years. The therapist was very helpful during some tough times at high school, during COVID, and her freshman year away from college. She's coming upon her sophomore year, and she still sees her therapist twice a month. I'm wondering where we go from here. My daughter is thriving overall, but I'm feeling like the therapist talks and talks and talks and offers explanations on how to manage anxiety that seem too complicated. I like the Flusterclucks approach to identify when a worry hijacks the nervous system, and that a person, grown-ups included, can take actions to self-soothe and handle it in a more skillful way without needing to analyze all the feelings and details. I don't want it in the therapy, but would like to see it go in another direction. Also, to be honest, the open-ended nature of therapy is not sustainable forever. Also, she's 19, so not officially a kid, but we are paying for the therapy. So this mom's like, are we done? How long is this going to go on here? Right. Walk us through this. Okay. Here's the good things about this. It was really helpful. So these parents, they had a daughter who was struggling and they got her some help and she obviously made a good connection and it's helped her through high school, through COVID, through the transition to college. Don't we all want that, that you have a child or yourself and you're struggling and we find somebody that we can connect with and that gives us the help that we need and the support that we need. That's the goal. Here's also the goal. You develop the skills that you need. 
and then you take those skills out into the world. Therapy, when we talk about therapy, it's not just one thing. Talking about therapy, and we're talking about psychotherapy here, that's like saying we're talking about dogs. There are so many different types of therapies. There are actually hundreds of therapeutic approaches and models, truly hundreds. I happen to come from the model, which is, if you've listened to me for three and a half seconds, is very goal-focused and very skill-focused. So what are you going to learn in therapy, and then how are you going to take that out into the world? One of the reasons that that approach works for me is because of what I specialize in. So there are other things that people are dealing with where there is a different approach to therapy. For example, you have somebody who has a very significant history of trauma and what we refer to these days as complex PTSD. That therapy is going to be very much about building connection. That therapy is going to be very much about, certainly about skill building for sure, but it tends to be a lot longer. Then there's psychoanalysis which is what a lot of people just think therapy is, where you go sometimes even multiple times a week for years and you're lying on a couch and you have to talk about all the things that happened. And psychoanalysis has become less popular, although it certainly has its place. The approach has its place. What is your opinion on that place? Well, there are times, you know how I talk about being a how therapist rather than a why therapist. The thing about psychoanalysis is that it really wants to help you make connections between what happened in your past, between the way you were raised, looking at your parenting. There's a lot of emphasis on, you know, mothers is the stereotypical thing. That actually can be really helpful. I just don't think we need to talk about that for seven years, three times a week. I think that the idea or the concept that you really need to understand from whence you came, and we've even done episodes on how we all bring our emotional baggage in, that is really, really helpful. But the other thing about psychoanalysis, the model of that, and this was a model for a really, really long time, is that the therapist is the blank slate. The therapist offers nothing. The patient is to project onto the therapist. There are things called transference and countertransference. And all of that stuff, I think, and it's probably because I work with anxious kids and anxious families, I just think we can get a lot more done and a lot more efficiently when the therapist actually engages in the process and doesn't sit back and say the things that people associate with annoying therapists, which is, how does that make you feel? Or what do you think? Or say more about that. I am not a blank slate by any means. I bring myself to my work. The relationship that I have with my clients is based on who I am as a human being. People know about me. They come to see me in my office attached to my house. So I don't ascribe to the I'm a blank slate. I also don't ascribe to the idea that I could be a blank slate even if I wanted to. And there's been some interesting changes in the field over the last several decades where you really look at, is that actually possible? Is it actually possible for somebody to sit in a room with somebody else and have intense, intimate, deep conversations and you remain a blank slate? My answer to that is unequivocally 
no. Where does that take us in terms of this mom's question in terms of therapy and what works and what doesn't work? What works in therapy, to give a a rather unsatisfying answer, is what works for the client. That's really what you should be paying attention to. What works for the client? As a therapist, when you are working with people and you have the way you do things and your agenda and your process and your protocol, for lack of a better word, all of that is cool. You want to have something that sort of guides your work, but it's also about flexibility. I would never say you should see somebody once a week for six months and then therapy is over. I also wouldn't say you should see somebody twice a week for seven years in order to deal with their mother issues. The other thing that's interesting about therapy and the way that I was trained is there's this whole thing called termination. Termination is how you end therapy. And I was trained that you are to have termination, which means that you discuss with the client ending the therapy, closing off this relationship. You have discussions about what they learned. There's this whole termination process. Not only do I not like the word, but the concept to me is sort of interesting because once I have a relationship with a family, that relationship can last a really long time because the door isn't really closed on whether or not somebody wants to come back. This is going to sound a little contradictory, but this is the truth. I actually wrote an article about this for the Psychotherapy Networker a few years ago. I am a brief therapist in terms of my approach. Brief therapy evolved as a contrast or as an alternative to long psychoanalysis. A brief therapist is focused on goals. It's also called solution-focused therapy. Focused on goals, focused on skills, focused on moving a client in the direction of better functioning and sort of working yourself out of a job. So that is absolutely my orientation. However, what has happened over the years is that because I work with families and families go through developmental stages, I will see somebody when they're six and seven, and then they might go away for a few years and then come back when they're 12, when they're hitting puberty. I actually had one client who I saw when she was probably in middle school. Then I saw her for a little bit in high school. And then she came back to me as a young mom because she had just had a baby and she was trying to figure out that stage of her life. So I firmly believe in the ability to keep a connection as desired by the client over a period of time. Well, that makes sense because if you're teaching skills, the necessity of skills evolves, especially if you started in a pediatric stage. Right. They become adults. They need additional skills. That's right. So this whole idea that I'm going to terminate with you and I'm never going to see you again and our therapy is complete to me is a little false or a little forced. I say to people, once you're in, you're in. Once I have a relationship with you, if you call me back in two years and say, can I come back to talk about this? I'm going to say yes. And I do have these really lovely relationships with families that have lasted 10 years. When this mom is asking this question and she's saying, how long does this go on? The way that I would think about it is that 
this girl is now 19 and she's doing well and she's off at college. She's seeing this therapist twice a month. What are the current goals? What I would ask this young woman is I would say, what have you learned about managing your anxiety? What have you learned to do as you step into new situations? What do you know about yourself that you didn't know when you started this therapy? And then is it okay for this young woman to check in with this therapist? Maybe once a month or once every two months or something? Sure. It's really not when does the therapy end, but probably more accurately, when does the therapy shift to more of a maintenance therapy? I have people that come and see me once every three months, once every four months, because they want to maintain that relationship. And that's really fine with me. It really is fine with me. When you talk about the goals and the skills, since I've never been an actual client of yours, Mm -hmm. if someone comes in for that three-month maintenance check-in, how do you structure that session? First, we say like, how, how are you doing? And they fill me in a little bit about what's going on. And then I say, tell me about your successes. Because what that becomes, if they don't have something specific that happened, what that becomes oftentimes is they're coming in to report to me how they handled things. Mm -hmm. They're coming in to report to me to say, well, I did this or I did this. Sometimes they're coming in and they'll say, oh, I'm so glad that I had this session scheduled with you because two weeks ago, blah, 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 blah happened. The thing in terms of when I'm seeing people in that way, what I'm really looking at and what I'm really hoping to impart to them is truly relapse prevention. That's what it becomes. So that when you are going through a tough time in the future, how do you know what to do? Even without a therapist, what are the things that you've learned that are preventative? That's what it becomes. And that's really, really important when people come in and they're struggling with an episode of depression is that we want to give them the skills that help. But I think you've heard me say a lot that prevention and treatment are virtually indistinguishable. I'm really looking at how am I helping them with relapse prevention? That's what I'm talking about. When we come back, let's really unpack your approach to therapy goals and also the critical part, the skills. Okay. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think 
that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free, in bulk, nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com. And use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook. You can add events directly using the touchscreen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. Okay, we're back. So my question to you is, I know you're very goal focused and goal focused of achieving specific skills. Like the goal is learning certain skills they then take out into the world. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you're keeping your eye on as the therapist, as the non-blank slate, 
Or is this something that you are sharing and calling out and using names for those specific skills with the child, the teenager, the adult? How much of that are they aware of the names of the skills that you are trying to help them build? A hundred percent. I want to be very open with them because if you're learning a skill, I want you to be able to recognize when you need the skill. I want you to recognize what it looks like when you don't use the skill. I want you to recognize the times that you pull up the skill and you've used the skill in a successful way. So I'm very direct. Even in a first session, I will say, here are the things I feel like we need to work on, or here are the skills that I'm going to help you build. The three X's, right? We're going to expect worry to show up. We're going to externalize it, and we're going to experiment it. That's the very, very truncated shorthand of the skills I'm trying to build. And I'm very clear with that. With little kids, I'll use the four B's, brain, body, bravery, bridge. And those are the ways that I talk about those skills. You're going to understand how you interact with your body when you're feeling anxious. So you get that mind-body connection. The brain part, we're thinking about how you're paying attention to the thoughts you have, the way you think, and the way you respond to your thoughts. Bravery is that skill of being on offense, which means we're going to step into the situation rather than avoid. And bridge is the skill of being able to make sure that you stay connected to your successes. Those skills I'm teaching, for teenagers, it may be we're talking about relationship skills. We're talking about how do you recognize whether or not you are making good decisions for yourself? How are you problem solving? Are you self-medicating or are you avoiding? We're going to deal with communication. There's all these skills that I teach, but absolutely they're right, 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 right up front. I am not keeping those a secret for sure. Yeah. I remember when we met, I was dating your brother and then married him. You used the phrase brief therapy with me. Yeah. And I had moved to Boston from New York City where all my friends and just like the therapy culture there is pretty prevalent. Mm -hmm. And it was much more of the psychoanalysis approach. So when you said the phrase brief therapy, I was I just shuddered. Like, what is that? I did come at my perceptions and understanding of therapy. I'm a lay person. I'm not a clinician. But I thought understanding the why was mm -hmm. so important. And the why was the goal. Mm-hmm. And it was a really great shift for me that I think I didn't really learn until working with you on the podcast. The why is nice, but the how, ooh, that's where it gets good. The why is good to understand. I mean, it is really helpful to understand if you think about why you respond in certain ways. And for a lot of people who have never thought about that and never really understood the patterns that they developed and why they developed those patterns, that can be incredibly enlightening and helpful. For example, an adult might come in to see me and they're talking about stuff and they're describing the things that they had going on in their family. I remember talking to one guy and saying, you recognize that that was a really emotionally abusive childhood, right? I mean, you recognize that not everybody was locked out of the house when they were eight. And for him, that was really startling, but it made sense to him in terms of what he was trying to do now in his own family. And that's happened with many, many people. Then once we get that understanding, then we got to figure out how to live your life now. 
And that was always what was so interesting to me about when people would talk about therapy, where they would go and talk about their childhood or their relationships with their mother, and they were really working on understanding all of that stuff. And that the focus was really on what are you projecting onto the therapist and how has the therapist come into that role uh, as a parent, et cetera, et cetera. I always thought, okay, so how long are we going to talk about this? Because I need this person to figure out how to have a successful marriage now. And I need this person to figure out how to parent their children now. And this person has gotten fired from their last seven jobs. I need them to figure out how to interact with an employer now. So it can be that meld between the understanding of why, but how is really what gives us the skills and what gives us the capability to function in our lives right now. And that's what parents say to me all the time. Just tell us what to do. I don't have the words to say. People will come in and they'll say, okay, so I have to have this really difficult conversation with my boss. Can we go through what I should say? I'm not going to say, why do you feel this way about your boss? No, no. They want to know what to say to their boss. They're looking for a raise and they're nervous about having the conversation. Or they don't want to be fired, like you gave an example just then, even more critical. Right. I'm communicating with my boss in a way that then they're firing me. Right. Yep. One question that I have is that this listener who has this therapist with their 19-year-old or many other listeners, because what I observe in our Facebook groups and our listener questions, there are so many different therapists who aren't you. And so if you're a parent or you are in therapy, your child's in therapy, and then you realize we're not really in a goal-focused scenario, but that sounds good. Is there hope to get the therapist on board to sort of move this along? How do you as a parent help manage it because access to mental health care is so tough that switching therapists is often just not an option. So tell us about that. I totally agree. Access to mental health care right now is crazy. There's sort of two parts to that question. One is when you're looking for a therapist, what are the questions you ask going in to find a good fit? Right. And again, because access is so problematic now that some people feel like, well, something is better than nothing. And there is truth to that, actually, but not all the time, because bad is not better than nothing. At the beginning of the process, you want to say to this therapist, if you're going in for yourself or for your children or for your marriage, how do you approach this? And what are the typical goals that you might? have a set. And here's the question that I really think everybody should ask. What are you going to have me do between sessions? Because that means that you're working on skills. So those are questions to ask. Once your child, and particularly if it's your teenager, is connected with the therapist and doing well with the therapist, and you're seeing progress with that therapist, and your teenager has made a connection with that therapist, quite honestly, it is not up to you to end the therapy. And I've seen parents come in and try to do that. Well, I don't think that my 17-year-old's therapist, I don't like the way she's doing things. And I say, well, is she better? Like, is she doing the things that you wanted her to do? Is she functioning in the world? And they say, yeah, but I would like her to change therapist. So I want to talk to the therapist about getting a new therapist. If your teenager is opposed to that, 
you as a parent, unless there's something very egregious going on, you can't go in there and end that therapy because you want to if your teenager doesn't. That's going to be a problem. If you are working with a therapist and your child is younger, or if your child is sort of teenagery, you can always have a conversation with a therapist. You can always say to the therapist, can we have a family meeting? Or can I schedule a time to talk to you? If the child is of a certain age, the child has to give permission for that. And it's really teenagers don't need permission if you have an eight-year-old. And it's okay for you to go in and ask those questions. And the way to ask that question, which isn't really going to sound like you're coming in and trying to be controlling, we talked about control last week, is to say, I just want to make sure that we're working on the right things. And I just want to make sure I know what my child is working on and how can I best support that. So that's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. And even more directly, you could say, what skills do you think my child really needs to build? Mm -hmm. And what could we be doing in between sessions? That's right. And you can ask that question. You can ask that question. Now, if the therapist says that's between your daughter and me, if it's a 19-year-old, there's not much you can do about that. But you can also ask your daughter, hey, you are doing so well and I'm so proud of you. What are the skills that you're working on? Or what are the skills you think that you've built? Because if we look at where you started and where you are now as this sophomore in college who's doing such a great job, what do you feel proud of and what are the skills that you've developed? You can say, you're going to therapy twice a month and we're paying for it and I'm glad that you've gotten such support. Where do you think this is going? Or what are your goals for this? The thing about this to remember also is that the 19-year-old may not know how to bring this up with the therapist. I've had a lot of kids come into my office, they're doing great, and the parent will come in and say, we were talking in the car on the way over, and she wanted me to bring it up. She feels like she doesn't have to come back here anymore, or she's wondering if she can spread out the sessions. Sometimes that's just a really hard conversation for kids and teenagers and even adults to have. And let me just tell you that a therapist is perfectly willing and in fact welcomes that conversation because then you're figuring out what the next stage of therapy is going to look like. That can be a hard conversation. That 19-year-old may be thinking, I don't, I don't, do I have to keep seeing her twice a month? She might be thinking that, but she just doesn't know how to bring it up or she doesn't even know that she's supposed to bring it up. So that's a perfectly fine conversation to have and one that I have all the time and one that I welcome. The skill of sort of advocating for yourself with your therapist is also that skill that we have as adults often. I'm a travel advisor, right? Mm -hmm. I have a client who's like, we're having a great time, but we're kind of toured out and we have another private tour scheduled. We're overwhelmed with facts and history, and we just want to like walk around by ourselves. What do we do? And I was like, you tell them you don't want the tour. <laughs> and they were like, oh, well, no, well, like we, that doesn't necessarily always work. And I'm thinking to myself, like, it's your vacation. Mm -hmm. How do you just say, this is what I want? And I was like, fake illness. Like, if mm -hmm. you don't know how to have that conversation, fake illness. But it's also, you know how people will say like, oh, how is your manicure or how is your haircut? And they'll be like, oh my gosh, they were killing me with their files or their name. 
Oh, that's <laughs> that's me. You're talking about me. The last time I know. Okay, so this is a very <laughs> the woman cut me with the scissors the last time I there. I have a long history of having of of like having blood drawn during manicures and pedicures. Yeah. Okay. So finish that sentence, Robin. And you can't believe like why you said very nicely. Well, why are you going back to that place? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that is in fact a skill. Yes. To be able to sort of advocate for what you want or need. Yes. So that is a skill. So, okay, now, so this is my meta point. Not everybody's awesome at every skill. That's right. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, like, that is a hard skill for me. Right. <laughs> I'll be much more agreeable. I mean, I've got a lot of stories about me saying like, yeah, no, it's fine, where something is not fine. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So that's actually what I thought just now, what I think our listeners need to hear who are new, and even if they aren't new, when you always use the term skills, throw out in no particular order, mm -hmm. give me five skills so that people know what you mean. A skill of being able to assert <laughs> your own needs. Getting a manicure and the woman is cutting you with scissors. Say something. That's so funny. So the ability to tolerate uncertainty, right? The ability to tolerate not knowing. The ability to be flexible. I talk about a combination of planning and flexibility, the ability to recognize when you've taken on too much, even executive functioning, because when people are very anxious, they get internally focused. So they lose track. They don't lose, sometimes they don't lose track of time, but they dismiss time because they've got so much that they need to do or that they think they need to do perfectly. The ability to cut corners. So when I'm talking to people who are anxious perfectionists, the ability to know when you can coast or when to cut corners, the ability to do something you don't feel like doing is a really big skill. The ability to get out of your own thoughts and feelings and externally connect is a huge skill if you are depressed, if you are socially anxious. The ability to tolerate the judgment of others is a major skill if you struggle with social anxiety. That's just sort of the list off the top of my head. Yeah, last week in the control episode, a couple skills you threw out. Because I always love hearing these little skills because they're fun aha moments like, oh yeah, that's a skill. That's a process we do. Mm -hmm. You talked about the ability to tolerate people doing things differently than you, mm -hmm. right? A control freak needs to learn that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about these skills in a lot of episodes. And I think that when we understand how we move through the world and there are certain skills, the lack of the skill or the trying to do the skill like really kind of triggers us. Hey, I'm going to go a little wacko now yeah. because this is hard for me. It's such a helpful way of viewing things. And this is kind of me coming full circle is that when you talked about brief therapy in the beginning, I was like, uh, what is that? That yeah. just didn't make sense to me. And honey, I am all in. I just think it's life changing. That's what I wrote that article about is that I'm a brief therapist who doesn't see people briefly. People are like, what do you mean? And one of the things about brief therapy actually is that it was very much advocated for those of you who are older, you will remember that when HMOs came in, that the therapy world was hit very dramatically 
with this concept that you have so many sessions to do therapy with this client and then they're done. This was a huge shift because back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, if you had insurance, you could go to therapy for ever and ever and ever, and nobody ever questioned. Insurance companies didn't question what the therapist was doing. There were no goals. So when this shifted at one point in my career, if I saw a client who had a certain insurance plan, I was given eight sessions with that client. At the end of eight sessions, I had to terminate. I could only give them eight sessions, or they had five sessions a year. Or if I were going to give them more sessions, and this still happens now, I had to fill out a form or talk to somebody at the insurance company in order to justify why this person needed to be in therapy more. Now, this was very distressing for a lot of therapists who had practiced in much more autonomy, but the flip side of it was is that it really did promote this idea that you should be teaching skills and moving people forward in therapy, and that's not a bad thing. Brief therapy wasn't invented because of insurance companies limiting treatment sessions, but it became much more popular and much more necessary for clinicians to learn because the insurance companies were limiting the amount of treatment that people could get. Mm. That has loosened up a little bit in the last 10 years or so and with mental health parity and that kind of stuff. Using insurance now requires for a lot of people that you focus on what you're doing in sessions because you have limited resources. That said, I was trained as a skill-based brief therapist, not because of insurance, but because of what made sense to me. But that's really how it became a real part of the therapy culture. So brief therapy is a mindset that was actually taken on by insurance companies because it made sense to them. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to me, not because what insurance companies are saying, but because with anything that I think that we're trying to achieve in life, it's good to know where you're headed and what the goals are for sure. Yeah. When we come back, I want to ask you about- My manicure? You want to ask me about my manicure? <laughs> Actually, the last time I saw you, you had a fabulous manicure. I know. That was the one where the lady cut my finger. So I, <laughs> the lady cut my finger and I had a good manicure. How about that? No, I would, what I wanted to talk to you about also is that you and I have privately talked about our favorite and horrible examples of therapy in pop culture. Oh, okay. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, 
possibility and joy. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. Okay, let's get back to this conversation. All right, so you want me to talk about therapy and pop culture? I'm going to start with something positive. Okay, okay. Here is a super positive one. Never have I ever. Oh. Amazing. Like, I think that's one of the best examples of effective therapy, especially for a teenager. Mm -hmm. I love that show. Isn't that a good one? Yes, it's a fabulous one for a few reasons. One is that the therapist is really real. She's a human being. She talks to the teenage girl in the show how you should talk to teenagers, and she's really direct. She calls her out on her BS when she's doing that. And that's actually one of the first ones that I've seen where when a character in a movie or a TV show was going into therapy, I didn't clench every muscle in my body. So yeah, that was a really positive one. That's a great show too. I was just actually this morning, I turned on the TV as I was getting ready And it was on, I don't know what my husband was watching, but it was on the show Monk. Do you remember the show Monk? Never saw it, but I remember it. Okay. So he was like a private investigator who is absolutely crippled by obsessive compulsive disorder. That makes me cringe. There are so many movies in which therapists are incredibly inappropriate. There are so many TV shows in which the therapist is really sort of clownish. There was a show recently called Afterlife, which was a series on Netflix. Ricky Gervais was a man whose wife had died and he was dealing with his grief. And it was a really great show, except the therapy that he had and the therapist that he went to see were just ridiculous. And I get it. It was a comedy, sort of. It was like a dark comedy. But just the way that it presented it was awful. I watched The Sopranos a long time ago. Just about to bring up The Sopranos. Yeah. The awesome example of boundaries when they're crossed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It really is interesting the way that it's portrayed on TV. I still see therapy portrayed on TV of that you come in and lie down on a couch. That just doesn't really happen very often anymore. It's almost the more current the example, the better it's getting. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I've still seen a few recently that are not so great. There's just a lot of misinformation about it. I think also I have to remember, and this is the analogy that I use in my head. I worked in a hospital for two years, and it was very routine for me to go into a hospital every day. It was very routine for me to be there for people who were coming in, getting surgery and that kind of stuff. And I hung out with nurses and doctors and people that lived in a hospital. And we forget sometimes that the person who's coming in for their surgery, who's coming in for their treatment, it's not an everyday occurrence for them. Going into therapy, oftentimes starting therapy, meeting with a therapist can feel really sort of scary and overwhelming. People don't know what to expect. It feels like a huge step that you're taking sometimes. And when I see on TV 
that it's portrayed in such a clownish, ridiculous, not helpful way, I just feel like that gets in the way sometimes for people reaching out and then also knowing what to expect or what questions to ask. Just to sort of say to everybody that going to therapy is certainly a big step. Getting help for your child is a big step. But it is important that you go in and you know what questions to ask and you feel like you can assert yourself and you ask those questions about skills. If you want a therapist that is focused on how, just be very clear about that. And it's okay for you to advocate for yourself. I see this distinction made often, which I think is dumb, to be honest, where people say, well, what's the difference between therapy and a life coach? Well, There's a lot of differences between a skilled therapist and a life coach, including length of training and knowledge of significant issues. That set aside, people will say, well, when you go to a therapist, you're really working on the past. You're really working on trying to figure things out from your childhood. But if you go to a life coach, you're really figuring out how to do things now. I'm like, oh my God, that is so wrong. If I wanted to be mean, I would put that on a little pillow and give it to you. Yeah. Oh, it just makes me cringe. If people don't go to therapy because they think the time they're going to spend is talking about their mother and they're like, look, I don't want to talk about my mother. Don't want to talk about my childhood or I don't want to talk about this or that. Therapy is really effective when people learn what they need to know about themselves now how to interrupt the patterns that very likely came from childhood, very likely came from the way they were raised, very likely came from their patterns. But life coaches are not different from therapists in that way. They're different from therapists in a lot of ways, but that's just not a distinction. It just drives me crazy, actually. My colleague, Terry Real, who I've talked about before, and if you haven't read his book, Us, which is a book about couples, he's just fantastic. But one of the things that he says about couples therapy is that he was trained to always be neutral and never take sides. And he does not ascribe to that. I just saw a quote from him in something. He says, sometimes a marital problem or a relationship problem is 50-50. Sometimes it's 60-40. And sometimes it's 99-1. And it's my job to figure out where that lies. Being able to recognize that therapy is really skill building, it can be wonderfully supportive. The relationship is absolutely key to learning the skills, just like in any situation. I know you're trying to be delicate. Yeah. I'm just going to say a bit about life coaches. Okay, go ahead. The challenge with life coaching is that very often your training and your preparation that you're going to have to go and help other people is all based on your own self-experiences. Because you don't go to any kind of training, do you? Well, I mean, you have to get certified. By whom? That's another thing, too, people, is that the old certification thing, beware the certification. Doesn't mean anything. I mean, I could say a lot about that, too. If you're certified in something, it means you went to a training by somebody who then claims that you're certified. Which is a very effective business model. There's a training that I did for another organization. It's a three-day training that people take, and then you get certified as a blah, blah, blah. And people are like, I'm certified in the Lynn Lyons approach. I didn't, you know, that's, it's just a piece of paper they give you. So beware the certification. If we're talking about depression, anxiety, if we're talking about a history of abuse, if we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, the life coach dealing with these issues, if they don't have training, 
which I can tell you a lot of them don't have training, you need to be really careful about that. I think as the takeaway for all the lay people out there is that remember that you have say of what your therapy experience is, Mm -hmm. the goals that you have. If the therapist doesn't offer them, you should ask for them. And then you should also understand that this is a lifelong process, but it doesn't have to be weekly. Right. Mm -hmm. And to this mom who's trying to figure out what to do with her 19-year-old, she just needs to have a conversation with her daughter because at 19, the daughter is going to have some say in this and can say, look, we're paying for this and it's an expense. And what are you doing in the therapy? And how do you imagine this going? And ask the question because truly, the 19-year-old may not know that she can say, I'd rather meet once a month or I'd rather meet every other month. If this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.